<clears throat> okay, well, um, thanks, Kevin, and uh, hi, everyone, and thanks for uh, coming. Um, so I think I am going to talk uh, a lot about the relationship between Giorgio Melani and fascism. Um, I noticed that the advert for this meeting showed a picture of Giorgio Melani with her hand outstretched, her palm outstretched, uh, as if she was doing a fascist salute, uh, but with the wrong uh, arm, uh, the left rather than the right. And in fact, a fascist salute isn't something you're particularly likely to see Giorgio Melani doing. Um, I, in general, uh, would say, particularly through the rise of phenomena like um, Donald Trump, or uh, even, say, the Front National in France, uh, personally, I've been very sceptical of the tendency to reduce these phenomena uh, to, the, to the language of fascism, uh, to that historical connection, and to the kind of spectres of the, of the interwar period. Uh, often, particularly when Trump was president, uh, some of the more ludicrous uh, sort of performative aspects of his presidency, like oh, him haranguing a crowd from a balcony or such like, were, were cited as uh, evidences of sort of comparisons with Mussolini. Uh, so I think there's a lot of like trivial connections with the past that, that can be drawn. And actually, I think what the Italian case um, is, is interesting for is precisely that the, the national connection to historical fascism and actually the direct, uh, let's say, genealogy, the family relationship between uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Meloni's party, and historical fascism actually shows what has changed and why it, why it is different. Um, so really my, my way of uh, talking about Fratelli d'Italia, I'll start by saying, is as a post-fascist party. Um, by what, what I mean by that is not an analogy with historical fascism. It's not pointing to similarities or, or finding ways that they're similar. Post-fascism, in the way I use it, specifically refers to the fact that the party is actually a product of historical fascism. It is a party that is the continuation of the MSI, the party created in 1946 by former leaders of the Solo Republic, the uh, holdout uh, Nazi collaborationist um, uh, Italian fascist regime. Um, not only veterans of the Solo Republic, but people who proudly claimed their continuity with it. Um, from their founding Congress in 1948, they said that they aimed neither to restore nor disavow the regime. So they always accepted basically that they wouldn't be able to recreate the regime, but they claimed its identity, drew on its political heritage, uh, claimed its successes and its example and its values as their own. Um, even into the 1980s, uh, the leaders of this party, such as Giorgio Amirante, who was one of the founding leaders, uh, and then uh, who uh, and who had been a, a, a um, a junior figure in the Salah Republic, they proudly claimed themselves to be fascists, and they did so uh, through the specific idea that fascism is not just a um, the historical forms of fascism, is not just the regime, is not just street mobilization and counter-revolutionary violence and 
you know, the 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 the, uh, the the organizational and historical form that fascism took, but that fascism is actually a, a synthesis of ideas. It is a political culture. Um, and I think that um, any uh, understanding of, of what fascism is has to take this claim seriously. Um, because I think that although um, the kind of um, movement that even the MSI was in post-war decades, or still less Fratelli d'Italia today, you know, is not based on the exaltation of political violence. It is not based on, uh, particularly now, not based on countering a revolutionary threat. Uh, it is not even, it, it does not have either a utopia to fight against or one of its own. It exists within the bounds of liberal democratic political structures. Yet also at the same time, it draws its ideas and reference points from historical fascism. Um, so I think, you know, when we look at the, um, the kind of comparisons that are, that are made uh, between, you know, sort of with the election, uh, recently we had a lot of this stuff kind of saying, well, um, Meloni's government is the first, sorry, Meloni's government is the most right-wing Italian government since 1945. I think that is more or less um, uh, incontrovertible. But of course, the fact that it's the most right-wing since 1945 doesn't mean that it's a return to 1945 or somehow kind of continuing in that vein. Um, and you know, a lot of uh, the comparisons we've seen made recently, of course, played on this, as, as Kevin mentioned in the uh, in the introduction, the fact that it's uh, a century since the March on Rome, um, since Benito Mussolini was first appointed prime minister on 31st of October, 1922. Uh, there had been some suggestion uh, a few weeks ago that the formation of the new Italian government after the election might in fact be delayed uh, in order to prevent uh, Meloni from having to preside over the anniversary, which could be uh, embarrassing to her, um, if you will, uh, not entirely unlike the way that Liz Truss became prime minister uh, immediately before the Queen's death, uh, presided over that and then was basically uh, out of the way again. Um, but in fact, you know, with the centenary, the really noticeable thing about Meloni's uh, way of dealing with it was that she didn't mention it uh, at all. She ignored it completely. Um, when she had her own uh, confidence vote in the lower house of parliament on the 25th of October, uh, what was actually interesting was that the way that she excised fascism from her party's history. Uh, so in, in it, she gave a kind of a potted history of Italian nationalism. Uh, and in it, she said, uh, the party upholds the distinctive, quoting, distinctive European values, civilizational values of freedom and democracy, uh, values in which I've always identified, despite what has been instrumentally claimed, I have never felt sympathy or closeness with anti-democratic regimes, fascism included, exactly as I have always considered the racial laws of 1938, the lowest point of Italian history. So such a statement could sound a bit like a condemnation of fascism and many outlets like The Guardian and so on reported it basically as that, you know, Meloni distances herself from fascism. Um, but I think what's interesting in this kind of statement is actually that the choice of words and references is a very well-established one uh, in the post-fascist 
milieu. Um, so even the word post-fascism itself um, basically started being used uh, by the uh, previous generation of leaders of the party, uh, led by uh, Gianfranco Fini in the early 1990s. Uh, as I said before, the, uh, the party was founded in 1946 by veterans of the Salah Republic, uh, and actually up until 19, 1991 was the last moment at which a, a leader from the Salah era, uh, Pino Rauti, a, a figure also involved in many judicial affairs around 1970s neo-fascist terrorism, um, up until 1991. Um, and basically, actually, basically also the, the moment that Giorgio Meloni herself joined the party, uh, which is in 1992, uh, the leadership had many such figures, veterans of Salah. And Fini came from a younger generation, someone who hadn't you know, fought for fascism, had grown up in the post-war republic, uh, who was more like a, a, a careerist politician, we could say. And when he took over the party, he promised to be a fascist for the year 2000, uh, emphasizing that the party would have to change in order to survive. Um, but then what he actually did uh, was to begin to detach the party from elements of the fascist tradition uh, in order to preserve uh, its core. Um, so in so doing, you know, one of the really big developments which allowed him to do that was the end of the Cold War. Um, so, you know, up until 1989, the Italian political system had basically been premised on the dominance of Christian democracy, basically as a bulwark against the communists uh, and with various liberals, social democratic, in the Italian context, the liberals are a right-wing party. Um, yeah, so liberal and social democratic and reformist allies uh, excluding from government both the communists and the MSI. Um, and this system uh, built up within itself, uh, among other things, uh, a certain institutional stagnation and vast networks of corruption uh, based around the uh, dominant parties, and particularly the smaller parties uh, within the system of government, the ones which didn't have mass bases, but which did have uh, basically access to control of government contracts and so on. Um, and when the Cold War ended, when the solidarity built by around anti-communism ended, Christian Demo democracy and the, the uh, more junior ally, the Socialist Party, they more or less instantly collapsed uh, in response to the dissolution of the Communist Party. So the Communist Party dissolved, the uh, Christian Democrats and Socialists entered into the uh, corruption scandals known as Tangentopoli, uh, Bribesville, and this exploded the Italian centre-right political space. Already up to this point, the MSI had always sought uh, allies. The MSI had always been uh, Giuseppe Perlato, a historian of the party, calls it a party with a neo-fascist like historic identity, but with a uh, anti-communist political purpose. And throughout post-war decades, it had often tried to make itself either a junior ally of Christian democracy or to form a sort of right-wing uh, block outside of it. And this basically uh, failed. Um, and But it was the end of the Cold War, the end of the Christian democracy, the arrival on the political scene of Silvio Berlusconi, uh, which allowed the MSI to become the party of government for the first time. Uh, this happened before it made any kind of renunciation of fascism. Um, so I think one thing that's kind of interesting is that 
um, when um, we, so this was based in the 1994 general election. I think one thing that's kind of interesting is that while with the, the rise of Milani and Fratelli d'Italia being the main party on the right, there was a kind of certain level of um, um, sort of speculation like, oh, you know, um, isn't this like an extremist sort of out of this world government such as we've never seen before? But actually the, the reaction to the MSI arriving in government for the first time in 1994 from um, Italy's international allies, from bourgeois politicians, from social democrats in the European Parliament and such like, was much more negative than it has been to uh, Fratelli d'Italia uh, now. Uh, for example, when uh, the uh, MSI was first in government in 1984, one of its leaders, a relatively more conservative figure uh, called Pinuccio Tattarella, who became prime minister, uh, sorry, who became deputy prime minister in Berlusconi's first government, uh, when he went to the first like meeting of European ministers after the election, uh, the Belgian deputy prime minister like refused to shake his hand and called him a fascist and you know now i think it would be uh, unimaginable that even such a kind of symbolic uh, act would 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 be possible uh, with regard to a party like fratelli d'italia they have become very normalized as part of the right-wing coalition uh, over the last three decades um but i want to dwell a bit more on the um, on the on the kind of cold war uh, context as well to talk about the MSI uh, because you know, this was a party that explicitly called itself fascist which you know, was normally the kind of fourth or fifth uh, largest party in post-war republic. This was not because um, of some sort of you know as if like 1945 represented a sort of abstract judgment of history which declared that fascism could never again be that fascism could could not be a real political force, but rather relied on the, you know, its marginalization, uh, relied on its, uh, well, basically its inept strategy, and also the fact that other forces were better able to compete it. There was no kind of formal cordon sanitaire or no explicit kind of ban uh, against it. Um, I think uh, often, um, certainly when I, when I publish articles on um, Jacobin, uh, about post-war Italian politics. Um, often the, the kind of comments um, on like Facebook and Twitter and so on reflect a certain kind of left-wing common sense about post-war Italy, which is as if uh, the Communist Party would have arrived in power had only there not been a kind of manipulation of the Italian electoral system and indeed support for anti-democratic forces to try and stop it from reaching power. So of course, there's examples like Operation Gladio, so the formation of NATO stay behind structures, which would have resisted a communist uh, victory had it happened. Uh, and indeed the role of, which is still very murky, but the role of both Italian secret services and parts of the NATO command in the strategy of tension. So terrorist attacks, which were aimed to create a climate polarization and um, therefore a demand of destroyed Italian democracy rather than allow the communists to take over. This, of course, is basically in the period between uh, what well, the kind of high phase of this is between 1969 and 1974, but uh, the terrorism, uh, neo fascist terrorism, continues into the early 1980s. 
Um, I think the, the problem with this kind of um, reading of Italian history, the one which is very focused on the preparation to stop the Communist Party, um, is that it doesn't really explain why the communists didn't succeed and therefore also exaggerates the importance of fascists in stopping them, uh, in stopping the communists uh, coming to power. Um, there's a very good book by um, Gregorio Sorgona, who's a, a historian at the Gramsci uh, a, a Foundation in Rome, which is precisely about the MSI's relationship with the United States. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, basically. And what's really interesting about the, um, the, the, the way of relating to the US that I just described, it, so the, what's particularly interesting about the uh, MSI's attitude towards the United States and the United States role of the, as the leader of the world anti-communist struggle is that it is based on a mirror image of the kind of left-wing version of events I just said i.e. one in which basically the MSI will be the kind of local anti-communist bastion which the United States will support and fund and legitimize in order to stop the communists from coming to power. Uh, and I think that, and so to that end, they did stuff like trying to make contacts with, for example, with Barry Goldwater, the, uh, the far-right Republican candidate in the 1964 uh, uh, Republican primaries. Uh, oh, sorry, he was the uh, he was the candidate. Um, and then um, uh, with uh, Nixon in 1968, they like did some sort of volunt. You know, they worked on his campaign. They tried to like sell their services as allies of his, um, and they wanted in Italy to do things like the uh, Chile. Uh, coup of 1973, they praised the regimes of Greece and Spain and Portugal and so on, and saw these as models of anti-communist dictatorship. And I think really the, 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 the failure of that approach uh, and that reading of, of history is that it doesn't integrate an understanding of the power of the reformist forces in Italian society to integrate the workers' movement, to integrate the demands from below, and indeed to carry out a kind of modernization of Italian society. Um, you know, particularly in, in the fact that the Christian Democrats throughout the 60s and 70s repeatedly drew the socialists into government with them, and they did mount important uh, reforms. They did, uh, they, you know, they, over the 20th, 30 years after World War II, with very many contradictions, um, you know, Italy moved from being a very austere and poor and predominantly agricultural country into a much more modern and industrial power, one that was much more secular, uh, one that was uh, much more sort of liquid in its social form in the sense also that, you know, people move, between, you know, millions of Italians move between regions and so on. And the kind of social model that the MSI put up in response to that was purely backward looking and reactionary. I'll give two examples of this. One is that um, the rise of university education, um, which was obviously, you know, became a more mass phenomenon in the 1960s and also gave rise to the student movements of 1968. 
uh, as well as opposing the student movement uh, and not taking part in it, the MSI's response was also to call for a lessening of the number of university places and the restriction of university education to a small professional elite. Um, at the same time, another important uh, sort of civil rights, if you will, battle of this period was over divorce, which was legalized in 1970, but then faced a, a referendum on it in uh, 1974. Um, in that referendum, the MSI campaign was entirely premised on insisting that a vote to continue to allow divorce would de facto be a vote for communism. And the party propaganda was dominated by the message that this was the chance for Italians to cast a vote in a referendum on communism. Uh, when Almirante, the leader, was, was allowed a uh, sort of televised address, you know, like a party political broadcast, but for the referendum, he said, you know, you shouldn't vote with the Brigate Rosse, the Red Brigades, the terrorists, with the Lotta Continua, with the Communist Party, but use this to vote against them. So really, I think that the thing is, is that even as a right-wing party, uh, the, the MSI uh, was uh, spectacularly unable to interpret the kind of movements going on in society or give any kind of vision of modernization, even of a better capitalist Italy. It in fact counterposed to the real development of Italy, uh, the superiority of states like Spain and Portugal and Greece, which were also, uh, apart from anything else, uh, also dramatically poorer uh, than Italy. The reason why this, uh, I mentioned this, this history is, uh, well, I think, well, I would argue it uh, has an interest of its own, but rather that what was interesting when you know, we talk about Meloni's tie to fascism is that her party doesn't celebrate the history of the fascist regime. Some of its leaders and officials do uh, and get involved in you know, being caught out praising Mussolini or having busts of Mussolini in their homes and this kind of thing. But I think that the, the real central uh, thrust of the party's identity isn't about that. I think it's about defending the record of the post-war neo-fascist movement, because it allows them to tell a different kind of story, which is one in which um, the, the right, as they would call it, uh, and indeed as Meloni increasingly refers to the MSI, the tradition of the Italian democratic right, they say that that movement was repressed by a vicious and violent anti-fascism, that in the post-war Italy, there was a kind of communist hegemony, which even if never a national government, just kind of pervaded society and was backed up by the kind of street violence of further left uh, groups, including ones like Avanguardia Operaia uh, and uh, the Red Brigades and so on. This is a fantastical and untrue vision of history, but nonetheless, it's very important in terms of redefining Italian nationalism and indeed the neo-fascist tradition purely in terms of victimhood. So it's not about celebrating, you know, the old visions of fascist empire or something like that, but rather treating her own political tradition as silenced, cancelled, uh, criminalized this kind of thing. Um, so in her speech to the lower house of parliament, what was telling was that she 
uh, cited the case of Sergio Ramelli. And Sergio Ramelli was a 18-year-old uh, killed uh, by members of Avanguardia Operaia in Milan in 1975. Um, Milan had been the city where uh, there was a very active um, neo-fascist movement, including uh, terrorist groups. And at a MSI demonstration in 1973, um, uh, three hand grenades were thrown by MSI members and a policeman was killed. So while the party often sort of tried to sell itself as a conservative party, a party of order, uh, echoing Nixon's uh, language of the silent majority, this kind of thing, they actually killed a policeman on their own demonstration. Um, and there was a, a sort of uh, fascist hangout in Milan, a square called Piazza San Babila, where um, some of the important terrorist attacks of the period were, were organized. Um, so if we look at that history, we look at the MSI's connection to other neo-fascist groups, we might find a very murky history in which the MSI helped out neo-fascist terrorists, maybe some of its own members were involved in attacks, this kind of thing. But the history of Sergio Ramelli is something different because he was an 18-year-old boy, he was a young member of the MSI, he didn't really have any important political record or, or function in the party, and he was marked out to be punished by Avanguardia Operaia after he wrote an essay in class where he attacked the, the Red Brigades. And basically when he came home from school, they beat him up with uh, like wrenches over the head. And, you know, it's unclear whether they planned to kill him, but basically they beat his head in. He fell into a coma. Seven weeks later, um, he died. And Sergio Ramelli is today um, the icon of neo-fascist um, sort of self-celebration, because what he stands for is like the innocent young man who died because of his ideas. Um, so at a certain level, this takes the form of, of a sort of language of pacification. So in Milani's uh, parliament speech, she said, well, you know, this is the, this was what anti-fascism meant in the World War period. It's this ideological violence. It's a refusal to accept a pacification of society. It's a rejection of democracy because it refuses to accept the fascist opponent as a, as a combatant in like a democratic, uh, you know, exchange of ideas rather than an enemy to be marked out and killed. Um, and a lot of figures, including on the centre-left of Italian politics, also participate in the kind of annual uh, events which mark Ramelli's death every 29th of April. Uh, and, you know, there's various cities, particularly in Milan and Lombardy, the surrounding region, have these monuments to him, which cast him as an innocent, of, uh, innocent murdered by political violence, uh, and whose, you know, memory serves the spirit of pacification, of ending political conflict, this kind of thing. At the same time as these kind of official celebrations where he's a, you know, an innocent, uh, he's also celebrated by rallies where hundreds, if not over a thousand um, neo-fascist militants will meet up outside his house with uh, 
Celtic, uh, sorry, Celtic cross banners and torches and do fascist salutes and where they commemorate him alongside um, uh, fighters for the Salo Republic, Nazi collaborationists who were killed in the final days of World War II. And it tells this story of the ideological terror by uh, anti-fascists against fascists. Um, so in this sense, he's, you know, the victim, Ramelli, is both sort of depoliticized, reduced to just uh, you know, a young boy who, who never you know, hurt anyone, but was just happened to be a member of the MSI. But then he's also celebrated because through his like martyrdom, he stands in for the innocence of the neo-fascist movement and the way it was supposedly criminalized and depressed throughout post-war Italy. And when we look at other ways in which Milani talks about um, historical fascism, they always obey this schema. So when Milani talks about World War II, she never talks about Mussolini, the empire, the invasion of Yugoslavia, this kind of thing. But what she does talk a lot about is the uh, post-war days and weeks and months, the killing of Italians by, uh, particularly by Yugoslav partisans. So if we think of the way that you know, many uh, former Eastern Bloc countries uh, today sort of um, uh, redeem their own World War II era nationalists and Nazi collaborationists by, uh, by, you know, by setting them up as defenders of their countries against Russian imperialism and rejecting the idea that there was a liberation in 1945. Um, the right-wing parties in Italy, not just Fratelli d'Italia, but also the Lega and Forza Italia have this similar idea, which is where the, the liberation by the allies and partisans is instead replaced by the story of the innocent Italians who were um, put to death by Yugoslav uh, partisans after the end of the war. So some of the territories which Italy conquered after World War I, which were then taken by Yugoslavia at the end of World War II, and in these areas, uh, probably even after the armistice in uh, the end of April 1945, even after the armistice, probably some, let's say, very low thousands of Italians were killed. Uh, this was always a kind of uh, hobby horse of the MSI in post-war decades, which rejected the uh, Italian territorial concessions after World War II in, uh, in the Adriatic. And uh, it's something called the foibe, which refers to the, uh, the, the, the holes in the ground. They're like natural sinkholes where the, uh, where the Yugoslavs supposedly threw the victims uh, to death, although there's very little evidence of, of real cases of that happening. Uh, even if they threw some of the bodies in the pits, uh, you know, they literally throw people to their deaths, except in a few dozen cases. But anyway, this story, this Italian martyrdom, the anti-fascist violence and rage that continued even after Mussolini was dead, um, is the cutting edge of far-right um, sort of public memory culture in Italy today. And in 2004, uh, the, the Berlusconi government at the time, at the instigation of a, uh, uh, he's now a Fratelli d'Italia senator, um, um, his name, uh, Roberto Menia, they introduced a national memorial day 
for the, the this thing, the foibe, the killing of Italians by um, Yugoslav partisans. And it's celebrated two weeks after Holocaust Memorial Day. And often the two events are kind of celebrated in tandem. So it's like, you know, not only was there the genocide perpetrated by fascism, but there was always the, also the ethnic cleansing perpetrated against Italians. Uh, and this language of ethnic cleansing, drawn, of course, not from the time of World War II, but actually from the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, is used to present the idea that Italians uh, are subject to genocide, and indeed that the, uh, the Italian left supported a genocide and ethnic cleansing against Italians in 1945. Um, no serious historian of, the, of this period, of the borderlands and so on, uh, takes this narrative seriously. The idea of ethnic cleansing is absurd. Uh, the Italian state has handed out medals to the, um, uh, basically, if your relative died in this period, in this area, you can apply for them to have like a medal of honor. There's no official list of all of the recipients, but the ones that have been put together by uh, historians basically show that the large majority of recipients were local fascist officials and indeed direct collaborationists in the Nazi German occupation of the area. So, you know, really, uh, of course, lots of innocent people were, or, you know, let's say lots of civilians were among the dead. And, you know, there were rapes and, and, and all sorts of, um, you know, horrible deaths and so on. And it did indeed happen after the armistice. But in effect, it was part of the Yugoslav communist takeover, you know, destroying the previous political authorities rather than some sort of ethnic cleansing or, or even sort of terror uh, against the population. Uh, and today, uh, Fratelli d'Italia talk about this event in very close combination with the idea that uh, uh, of Italians from the borderland, and today they seek the um, ethnic replacement, uh, the great replacement of white Europeans with uh, Africans and Muslims. Uh, so again, the, 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 the connection uh, with World War II, with fascism, uh, isn't really to celebrate the history of fascism as such, uh, but rather to assert the idea of a uh, under threat national community which has to fight to, to protect itself. Um, I'll say just one other element before I um, sort of allow people to ask questions because I think I've been going on quite a while already. I mean, I think the the the, the fundamental dynamic I point to in uh, Fratelli d'Italia through its um, sort of uh, integration into a right wing alliance, first as a junior partner to Berlusconi in the 1990s. Uh, then more recently as a junior partner to the Lega uh, as the leader of the right-wing bloc and now itself becoming the right-wing, uh, the main force within the right, is that its uh, electoral strength isn't based on a, um, a kind of harshening of social conflict or a mobilization of non-electoral forces. Uh, I think rather it's the opposite I think that it has remained a party uh, which is attached to 
certain fascist ideas and thinkers and ways of talking about history, um, and which includes personnel from the former MSI, almost all of its leaders of former leaders of the MSI, but which also acts within a context of much lower expectations of what political action could even achieve. Uh, I think this is most strongly symbolized by the fact that it basically, uh, while the MSI, even from the early 50s, basically accepted the idea that it would be a junior partner in an American-led alliance. So you know, even though its leaders had fought against the American uh, liberation of their country, uh, they um, um, they um, they accepted basically be junior a junior role in the in in the post-war anti-communist alliance, and we see this um, you know has not only become more formalized uh, through like Italian membership of NATO and the what is now the European Union and so on, uh, but also that the Fratelli d'Italia accepts very severe limits on its its action. Uh, even compared to the Lega and Five Star Movement, uh, when they formed a government four years ago, uh, in that sense, Fratelli d'Italia is much more conformist and Atlanticist, uh, not seeking to break from the Euro-Atlantic alliance, but rather to strengthen uh, Italy's place within them. Its political radicalism, which includes, of course, conspiracy theories like the Great Replacement Theory, the idea that, say, George Soros funds the radical left to promote immigration and to you know, undermine the, the, um, the um, ethnic uh, basis of the Italian population, to break up the traditional family, to produce kind of serialized uh, subjects easily molded by the market, all this kind of stuff. Uh, bears a certain ideological and rhetorical intensity, um, which it mobilizes against its domestic opponents. Uh, yet the actual political proposals that Fratelli d'Italia makes are, are far less um, ambitious. They, they don't even seek to change the basic model of economic development that Italy is on currently. Uh, they have some kind of authoritarian ideas for the reordering of the state in the sense of um, you know, making the, the presidency a very strong executive, weakening powers to demonstrate, perhaps even some sort of laws which would seek to uh, ban apologism for communism, to ban apologism for Islamism, and these kind of uh, anti-democratic um, powers which we see already in countries like you know, Hungary and Poland and so on. Um, yet what also has to be reckoned with is the fact that it does all this in a context in which political mobilization and conflict has been drastically hollowed out already. They basically want to be in government in order to attack their domestic enemies, but within a system in which they don't challenge the uh, elites they denounce uh, at all. Um, so, I mean, in this sense, I think, you know, one of the, uh, when the MSI was first in government in, in the 90s, um, there was a lot of discussion about the idea of it having a kind of bad Gordesberg moment, like the German social democracy in 1959. So, you know, a party that had long, uh, in reality, uh, sought a place for itself within a liberal democracy and a market economy and so on. Um, you know, at the Bad Gordesberg con conference, uh, the SPD sort of formally renounced its ideological attachment to Marxism. Um, and in the 19, in 1995, at the Fuji Congress, 
the MSI did something rather similar, or at least roughly analogous in the sense that it, um, you know, it repeated a lot of things it had often said uh, about the fact it wouldn't restore the regime, that it accepted liberal democracy, that it condemned Mussolini's anti-Semitism, uh, this kind of thing, but also without mounting any kind of general critique of fascism as a set of ideas of, of values as a political culture. So in the document, what you instead, the kind of Congress theses, uh, what you instead have is a kind of mishmash of, of saying, well, of course, we draw on the traditions of figures like uh, Giovanni Gentile, Gabriele D'Annunzio, um, Marinetti, so various um, important ideologues who were very closely associated with the regime, also with the likes, for example, of Julius Evola, uh, as a post-war figure who uh, didn't call himself a, a fascist, but who had a, a, a radical and drastic critique of modernity and was very close to views of the MSI, like Pino Rauti. So you have all these like fascist ideas and references, but at the same time, they say, well, we're committed to uh, liberal democracy, not a, uh, a violent movement. Um, so I think that the what really energizes um, the leaders of Fratelli d'Italia, uh, what uh, excites them politically, is indeed fighting against the anti-fascist its identity, uh, the left, uh, the various kind of progressives who they call communists, and so on. Um, but that doesn't necessarily imply that the best way to fight against Fratelli d'Italia uh, is indeed through anti-fascism. Um, because I think uh, there's a difference between a sort of analytical perspective on the fact that, well, Fratelli d'Italia actually very much is rooted in historical fascism and tries to, uh, tries to sort of um, avoid it tries to um, sort of shut down space for its critics to even talk about the issue, to talk about historical fascism. Um, so I think uh, the, the, I guess the contradict or the tension in what I'm saying is, is that I think that on the one hand, it is important to fight these battles over historical memory. Uh, it can't be just be allowed to be, to become to an official state ideology that, in fact, Yugoslav partisans carried out a genocide against Italians at the end of World War II. Battles sort of have to be fought because you know there's such important questions of national identity and history. Uh, but I think we saw in the recent uh, election that the that anti-fascism as a mobilizing as a sort of broad uh, political mobilizing tool and reference point for for how the left should organize uh, is very ineffective. Firstly, because it no longer has any kind of uh, footing within the right wing camp. Um, you know, in the post war decades, uh, without wishing to prettify it, there certainly were Christian Democrats who were strongly opposed to the legacy of fascism were ridiculed and hated the MSI and sought to keep them from power. And it was not just a minority perspective and not just a preserve of the left. Uh, today, basically, I think that the uh, the sort of emotional and um, 
um, I mean, the, the emotional and political resonance of anti-fascism uh, is not able to either to mobilize outside of the left, uh, nor is it able to mobilize the kind of working class voters who have stopped voting for uh, centre-left parties through the more than three decades of Italy's disastrous uh, growth model, which has seen GDP flatline and within that wages fall. Uh, the idea of threat and danger from um, parties like Fratelli d'Italia, I think they indeed are dangerous, particularly to you know, migrants. They're dangerous also in the, way, in the fact that, for example, they want to uh, get rid of uh, welfare benefits for unemployed people. Uh, there are, you know, and they are a, a, you know, a racist uh, uh, party. But I think that the, the fundamental problem is that the uh, Italian centre-left constantly falls back on anti-fascism rather than uh, face up to its own failure to mobilise its electorate and to give them things that suit them materially. Uh, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, despite the kind of social and statist elements of historical um, fascism, including the post-war MSI, Fratelli d'Italia is basically a free market party which promises to lower tax for businesses and slash welfare benefits and impose harsher discipline on immigrants. So I think in response to that, uh, the, you know, it, it's well able to conquer the middle class right wing electorate. We've already seen that. You know, most of its new votes in this election came from the other right wing parties. It's not some generic populist uh, appeal that somehow tr transcends other divides. It is very much a party of the right. Um, and I think that the problem for the for the Italian left, including the whatever could remotely be called the far left in Italy, uh, is that it's not able to mobilize its own electorate on its own terms. Um, I was actually, in, in a sense, uh, almost the uh, the victim of this uh, in uh, in the recent election campaign. Uh, I wrote an article. Uh, which, like an opinion piece of the New York Times, uh, which basically, among which actually the main point of which was to talk about the general hollowing out of Italian democracy uh, and the basically limit, limiting of political choice to be between technocrats and then uh, neoliberals who also have far-right identity politics. Uh, but nonetheless, the article was basically taken up by Italian centrist media like La Repubblica or the Italian uh, La Stampa, this kind of thing. Basically, my article was taken as, well, the State Department through its organ, the New York Times, has decided that Giorgio Meloni is a fascist. And a lot of the political debate in Italy was basically about whether or not my article should be read as a, expressing a US government position. Um, sadly, it did not. Uh, and we had the much more important intervention by uh, Hillary Clinton, who basically came to Venice during the election campaign and said, well, it wouldn't it be great if a woman was elected prime minister. Um, so I think actually this also, um, uh, not that it's too, you know, I mean, not, not just through the prism of my own article, but rather the what was important about this election campaign and the way that uh, Fratelli d'Italia was treated was it was not at all as if um, I think, you know, looking at the Italian election campaign, it was not at all as if, for example, Marine Le Pen were about to seize power in what well, seize power, even win an election in France. It's not as if 
a force that was going to come to power in an important European country that would risk destabilizing the Euro-Atlantic um, alliances. Uh, in fact, what was also pretty noticeable was, of course, you know, the kind of scrutiny that Georgia Maloney had in the election for her past you know, demonization of George Soros, uh, use of great replacement theory, the very many fascists uh, in high positions in the party. Um, you know, it wasn't subject to anything like the kind of critical scrutiny that, say, Jeremy Corbyn was when he was Labour leader in Britain, because fundamentally she and her party are seen as less threatening within, you know, the 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 within things like the European People's Party, within the Biden administration, and so on. You know, that that party is not seen as a force for destabilization. And in fact, most of the kind of campaign against her. Uh, was premised on the idea that um, that she would destabilize that would that her allies would destabilize Italy's commitment to the uh, Ukrainian side in the uh, in the in the war, and I think what we saw basically was that you know, the successful replacement of you know even if let's say four or five years ago the kind of anti-fascist uh, mobilization against Trump. Uh, was basically here replaced by the the Russian question, and you know, of course, Salvini's very real, uh, real and close relations with uh, the Putin uh, government or regime in Russia. The fact that the Lega has previously um, uh, openly allied itself with United Russia, uh, likely had funds from it, and so on. Um, so I think that you know the the dangers that. Um, Meloni poses are not those of either she's going to create a fascist regime, uh, nor uh, from a different perspective, do I think it's likely at all that she'll seek some sort of confrontation uh, or split with, with the European Union or NATO or anything like that. I think there's no chance of that happening at all. Um, but rather, I think that the, um, the, 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 the government is instead going to pick fights around things like you know migrant NGOs, uh, supposed uh, LGBT lobbies, perhaps some sort of um, uh, measures against communist organization, uh, this kind of thing, um, which will both be uh, symbolic but also have very real uh, real consequences. Um, so I think you know it does those things informed by its fascist past, particularly when it's talking about national identity and history and so on. Uh, but then of course this also, points to the fact that, that those kind of themes, that kind of identity politics are also converging with the right wing of, um, of other more established conservative parties.